You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hi DPC, Uh, the reading today is Romans chapter 16, the whole chapter. Uh, So we'll be starting at verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centraea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Amplitus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristopolis. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Feglong, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Naris, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you as does Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Eratus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Now to him, who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel 
the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. In keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writing by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, uh, please pray with me as we look at God's word. Uh, Our gracious Heavenly Father, we we pray that as we come to this last chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, that you would be at work in our hearts and minds by the power of your spirit, uh, making us all the more a church that is full of your wonderful grace uh, and all for your great glory. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What exactly does a church full of God's grace look like? It's a bit tempting to to read Romans 16 as a kind of somewhat random attachment to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Like Paul was busy sending an email to them and then attach this chapter as a bit of an afterthought, you know, a kind of PPS. But but actually, Romans 16 ties together some of the really central themes of Paul's letter. In particular, the main theme of Paul's letter, which is the gospel of God, like the good news of God's grace to us in Christ. You could summarise the main idea of Romans 1 to 11 by saying that in his amazing grace, God is saving a people for himself from every nation, by Jews and Gentiles, a people who are known as his church. A church who have been chosen and called and justified and adopted by God's grace. A church who are being sanctified by God's grace. And a church who one day will be glorified by God's grace. And I don't stress if you don't understand all those words, what, are they all, what they all mean. Right? Because the simple point of Romans 1 to 11 is that in his amazing grace, God is saving a people for himself from every nation a people who are known as his church. And you could summarise Romans 12 to 16 by saying that as God's church who've received his amazing grace to us in Christ, we're called to live lives that are shaped by his grace. Remember Romans 12 verse 1, in view of God's mercy. Everything that follows in Romans 12 to 16 flows from those very words. We live our lives as Christians not to earn God's grace, but in response to God's grace. That God's grace would fill our lives, shaping absolutely everything that we do. And so with that in mind, what does a church that is full of God's grace look like? In Romans 16... I think we see four main characteristics of that church. A church full of God's grace is a church full of welcome, warmth, work, and watchfulness. That's predominantly verses 1 to 23. So it follows in verses 25 to 27 that this is a church that is all of God's grace, so it is all for God's glory. So first, let's look at how a church full of God's grace will be a church full of welcome. We'll spend most of our time on this point. 
Uh, even if you just kind of scan over this passage, you, you'll notice how many times that word greet is repeated. You can underline them all and count them if you like. Right? It's a word that, that speaks of warmly accepting someone, of receiving someone, of, of welcoming someone. In verses 1 and 2, Paul urges the Romans to welcome Phoebe. In verses 3 to 16, Paul sends his own greetings to, to various members of the church in Rome. And then in verses 21 to 23, Paul's immediate co-workers send their greetings to the church in Rome. By the, the key theme in this chapter is that of greeting people, welcoming people, accepting people. And that shouldn't surprise us, considering that the real emphasis in Romans 1 to 11, that by his grace, through faith in Christ, God has accepted us. Once we're in a church that is shaped by God's grace, where we would expect to see people welcoming and accepting one another. Paul's urge that the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome to do that in chapters 14 and 15. You remember in chapter 14 verses 1 to 3, he urged the strong in faith to accept their weaker brothers and sisters because God has accepted them. In chapter 15, verse 7, he urged them all to, to accept one another, just as Christ has accepted them. Right? A church full of grace is a church full of welcome. So, so let's look at some of the people who are welcomed in this chapter. Oh, we're not going to be able to look at all of them. Uh, but first, in verses 1 and 2, Paul urges the Romans to welcome Phoebe. Of course, we heard in our recent series on deacons, and you can see it right there in the footnote if you've got your Bible open, uh, that the word deacon there is simply the word servant. So it could be that Phoebe's just a very active servant in the church without having any formal leadership position or, or office in the church. But I think it's more likely that she did have the formal leadership position of a deacon. As described in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. I think that, at least in part, but because she described it as being a servant, not just of the gospel in general, but specifically of the church in Sencra. Which suggests that she's been officially appointed as a deacon of that church. Sencra was a kind of coastal port city about 13 kilometres from Corinth, where Paul was probably writing his letter. So it's almost certain that Paul asked Phoebe to deliver his letter to the church in Rome as part of her service as a deacon. So Paul says the Romans are to receive Phoebe, to welcome Phoebe first, because she's in the Lord. But as Paul said in chapter 15, verse 7, Christ the Lord has welcomed Phoebe, so now the Romans should welcome Phoebe. They should also welcome her, but because she's been a benefactor to many people, including Paul himself. So it seems that Phoebe is a very godly and wealthy woman who, in her role as a deacon, has used her wealth to practically support Paul and others in gospel ministry. In verses 3 to 5, Paul sends greetings to Priscilla and, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Paul first met this wonderful couple in Corinth in, in Acts 18 verses 1 and 2. Uh, and then they risked their lives for Paul in the riot in Ephesus in Acts 19. Uh, and now they're leading a house church in Rome. 
Uh, then Paul sends his greetings to Epinetus, right, who he calls the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia, or literally the first fruit for Christ. Right? The, the point being that, that Epinetus was the first of a great harvest of converts in this region. There's a little bit of a puzzle here in verse 7 about Andronicus and Unia. And there are two kind of big questions here. The first is, uh, is the second person named Unia, like a, a woman, or Unias, uh, a man? It seems pretty likely that she's a woman named Unia. Which raises the second question, which is that when Paul says Andronicus and Unia are outstanding among the apostles, uh, is he saying that these two were included among the kind of actual apostles, capital A apostles? And if he is saying that, does that mean there were female apostles? Which seems a little odd considering Paul's teaching elsewhere. So first, if Paul is saying they're included among the apostles, he's clearly not saying that they're included among the unique group of Christ's 12 apostles. Well, we know that uh, Matthias replaced Judas after his betrayal and death, uh, and we know that Paul was added as an apostle to the Gentiles, but we've got no record of Andronicus and Junia being added to that group. But I think that's because Paul's using the word apostle here in its more general sense of a sent one, right? a special missionary, an authorised messenger. But I think Andronicus and Unia were most likely an outstanding missionary couple in the early church. And then there's Rufus, right in verse 13 who might actually be one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross. You remember in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, Mark, who was probably writing his gospel in Rome, uh, referred to Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, it would suggest that, that Alexander and Rufus were, were actually members of the church in Rome. In verse 16, Paul sends his greetings from all the churches of Christ, reminding us that in his grace, God is saving a people for himself from every nation. In verse 22, Timothy, one of Paul's closest co-workers, sends his greetings, as does Jason, who's probably the same Jason who in Acts 17 sheltered Paul and Silas from persecution in Thessalonica. Likewise, Sosipater, uh, might be a, a different spelling of Sopater, who accompanied Paul in Acts 20, 20 verse 4. And then there's Tertius, right, the, the Christian scribe who had the incredible privilege of actually writing down Paul's letter, right, probably having no idea how many lives it would transform. A Gaius in verse 23, probably the same Gaius who's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 14. Uh, is clearly a, a wealthy man uh, with a large house uh, and a wonderful ministry of hospitality. Uh, finally, Erastus sent his greetings. A senior civil servant in Corinth, who in Acts 19.22 went on a missionary journey with Timothy. Uh, that's a fair bit of detail. Right? But the point is uh, that greetings are flying around left, right and centre in this passage. Why? Because a church full of God's grace is a church full of welcome. 
well, I don't want to encourage you guys, but because by and large, this is what I see in our church, right in DPC. Right? The vast majority of people who join our church comment on just how welcoming it is. Right? If you're new to DPC, I hope that's been your experience. I mean, but still, as we move through this process of kind of relaunching in-person gatherings, hopefully we're with lots of new people joining us. I want to urge us to, to grow in this area all the more. But especially with regard to not only welcoming our brothers and sisters who are like us or who we like. We don't just welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ who are like us. People in the same demographic as us, for example, right? other uni students, other couples without kids, other couples with kids, other singles, other retirees. And we don't just welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ who have the same interests as us. Whether whether that be sports or art or coffee or gardening or exercise or music or politics. As a church full of God's grace, we don't just welcome our brothers and sisters who are like us. And we don't just welcome our brothers and sisters who we like. The, the, the people where we have a natural affinity with, right? where we maybe we like their personality or their style or their sense of humour, maybe even the way they look. Well, we're not just to, to welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ who are like us or who we like. Well, I understand that that's easier, right? that that comes naturally to us. But as a church shaped by God's supernatural grace... We're called to welcome all our brothers and sisters who are in the Lord. I see at DPC, well, we, we do have an official welcoming ministry. They do a great job. We've got various official newcomers events. So we've got various church social events. Right, but to be a truly welcoming church, each and every one of us has to be mindful of, of welcoming others, don't we? This is just part of being a Christian. We don't wait for for someone else to to sit with the person who's sitting by themselves. We don't wait for for someone to speak speak to the person who no one else is speaking to. Why don't you do it? Go over and sit with them. Go over and talk to them. Arrange to have a walk with them and invite them over to watch church with you while we're doing online church. Maybe you can have dinner afterwards. A church full of God's grace is a church full of welcome. The other points will be shorter. A related point, a church full of grace is a church full of warmth. Which is to say, well, we're not just to welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ in a kind of cold and clinical way, you know, because that's what we're supposed to do, right? And we're to welcome our brothers and sisters with genuine affection and warmth. And we see that in this passage, right? Look in verse 5. Verse 5, uh, Paul says, Greet my dear friend Eponetus. Right? That, that word dear literally meaning beloved. Now, Paul is saying that Eponetus is, is the object of his affection. Right? In verse 8, Paul says, Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. In verse 9, Paul greets his dear friend, Statius. 
In verse 12, he greets his dear friend, Persis. And in verse 16, he urges the Romans to greet one another with a holy kiss. Right? A warm and affectionate greeting that, that was culturally very appropriate in Rome. Maybe we can shake hands or, or give someone an elbow bump, or whatever it might be. Right? For the church in Rome, this would have been particularly important. Right? Imagine... The strong and the weak from chapters 14 and 15, not just kind of begrudgingly putting up with one another, but welcoming one another with genuine affection and warmth. And don't get me wrong. But I'm not saying you've got to kind of manufacture some sort of fake warmth and affection for your brothers and sisters. That'd be even worse, wouldn't it? This warmth and affection is a special gift of God's grace. Right? It flows from a heart that's being shaped by God's grace. Right? Because by the power of his word and spirit, God, in his grace, has given us new birth into a new family. Right? So that we are children of God and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's as we meditate on that reality that our hearts and minds are transformed so that we don't uh, so that we're not distant or cold-hearted or even dismissive of our brothers and sisters. Uh, but we welcome our brothers and sisters with genuine affection and warmth. A church full of grace is a church full of welcome, full of warmth, and full of work. With all this talk of welcome and warmth, it might give the impression that we should just sit around all the time writing warm fuzzies to one another. You know, never getting busy doing work. Right, but, but you couldn't get that impression from Romans 16. Right, yeah, look at verse 3. Priscilla and Aquila are called Paul's co-workers in Christ Jesus. Right, they're even risking their lives for him. But Mary, in verse 6, uh, is described as working very hard for the church in Rome, right, with the sense that her service for the church has actually made her tired. Whether right, That's something Paul honours here. But Andronicus and Eunia, in verse 7, have been in prison with Paul. Uh, Urbanus, in verse 9, is another co-worker of Paul's. Uh, Apelles, in verse 10, is described as someone whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. I presumably through lots of suffering in gospel ministry. I like Mary in verse 6, Tryphena, Tryphosa and Persis in verse 12 are described as working very hard in the Lord. In verse 13, where we see that Rufus's mother has also acted as a spiritual mother for Paul in his ministry, like nurturing and caring for him along the way. And of course, the, the people listed in verses 22 and 23 are some of Paul's closest co-workers in the gospel. But all these people and others that I haven't mentioned uh, were clearly working very hard for the advancement of the gospel. Some of them had been set aside by the church to do it as their full-time or paid work, while others, lots of them, uh, were simply doing it in their spare time uh, while they earned a living doing something else. Right? A church full of grace is a church full of work. And now, to be honest, I wasn't quite sure how to apply this idea to our church. Right? Because overall, I think we're a pretty hard-working church. Right? Some people are probably working too hard. Right? So I've decided to apply it to two potential groups in our church. 
On the one hand, some of you uh, might have been working too hard uh, and you need to rest more in Christ. You need to accept your limitations. You need to take some time to slow down. You need to learn to say no. And you need to, uh, and you need to uh, rest in the fact that your acceptance before God doesn't depend on your work for Christ, uh, but upon his work for you. But some of you actually have been working too hard and you need to rest more in Christ. Whereas others might have, might have been really enjoying resting, resting in Christ. Right? Perhaps particularly during this season of COVID when lots of our ministries have wound down. But if that's you, uh, in the nicest way possible, I just want to suggest it's time to get back to work. You might say, well, what about Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, the Christian life is supposed to be one of rest, you say. Right? Stop asking me to do so much stuff in the church. It just makes me tired. But of course, after extending that invitation, the very next words that Jesus says are, Take my yoke upon you. What are you doing when you're wearing a yoke? You're working. You see, Christ does offer us rest, but it's not a rest from all work, not even from hard work. It's the deep and lasting rest that is found in yoking ourselves to Christ by faith and working hard with he and his people for the growth of his kingdom. But a church full of grace is a church full of work. And a church full of grace is a church full of watchfulness. Uh, after the long string of greetings in verses 1 to 16, verses 17 to 20 are a bit surprising, aren't they? Already in the context of repeated calls to, to welcome and accept our true brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul warns us to be watchful for and reject any false brothers and sisters in Christ. It's hard to be sure who the, the people in these verses were, but it seems like they might have been the people misleading the strong in faith from chapters 14 and 15. Because there's quite a few similarities between them. For example, first, these people are causing divisions, verse 17. You remember Paul's main concern in chapters 14 and 15 was to preserve the unity of the church in Rome. He urged them in chapter 13, verse 13, to avoid any dissensions. And then in chapter 14, verse 1, he urged the strong in faith to accept their weaker brothers and sisters uh, without quarrelling over disputable matters. But second, uh, these people are putting obstacles in their way. But in chapter 14, verse 13, Paul told the strong in faith not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of their brothers and sisters. But third, that the obstacles that they're putting in people's way are contrary to the teaching that the Romans have learned. In particular, they're contrary to the gospel of grace. Right? Because these people seem uh, to be proudly boasting in themselves, right? serving themselves, uh, rather than humbly boasting in Christ, right? serving him and his people. So at the end of verse 17, look at what Paul says. He says, keep away from these people. Right? Don't welcome them, watch out for them. Don't accept them, reject them. 
Oh, because verse 18, they're not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Well, this fits with chapter 14, verses 4 to 9, where Paul said that for Christians, submitting to the Lordship of Christ is what is most important. It also fits with chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Remember what Paul said there? He drew the contrast between pleasing ourselves and Jesus who did not please himself. So even though these people are, are smooth talkers, you know, persuasive in speech, charismatic in personality, Paul says they're actually deceivers, right? deceiving the minds of naive people. Right, naive then, and not meaning that these people are stupid or unintelligent, you're just meaning that they're not alert to the deception these people are. But Paul's confident of better in the Romans. Well, look at verse 19. He commends the Romans, saying, Everyone has heard about your obedience. And this is what you might call the obedience of faith. It's where Paul started his letter, we're in chapter 1, verse 5, and it's where Paul will end his letter in chapter 16, verse 26. The point being that everyone's heard that the Romans' faith in Christ has led them to a life of obedience to Christ. And that fills Paul with immense joy. Because he said in, in chapter 1, verse 5, that God gave him the grace to be an apostle, that he might call people from all over the world to the obedience that comes from faith. The Romans are the fruit of that. So at the end of verse 19, Paul urges the Romans to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Paul wants the Romans to be innocent but not gullible, to be welcoming but, not, but still watchful. So in verse 20, Paul assures the Romans that the God of peace, whether the God who in Christ has brought them to peace with one another, that God will soon crush Satan under their feet. Right? Satan, who always seeks to deceive, to distort the gospel, to divide the church that God has united. But God promised in Genesis 3 verse 15 that Christ, the ultimate seed of Eve, would one day crush Satan's destructive work. Tune in next week for the first of our Why Christmas sermons to hear more about that. But notice that Paul says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. So I think Paul's assuring the Romans, he's assuring the Romans and us, that as those who are in Christ by faith, and there's a sense in which we can crush Satan's destructive work. How? Well, by being watchful for and eliminating any false teaching that might deceive, that might distort the gospel, and that might divide our church that God has united. A church full of grace is a church full of welcome, warmth, work, and watchfulness. And in verses 25 and 27, where we see that if there's any evidence of those things in our church, it's all of God's grace, so it is all for God's glory. In verse 25, Paul assures the Romans that the God of all grace is able to establish them in accordance with his gospel. His gospel, uh, which he explains as being the message he proclaims about Jesus Christ. 
But this is a great encouragement, right? Our God is strong enough to firmly establish believers in Christ, right? To not only make people Christians by his grace, but to keep people as Christians by his grace to the end. Right? And Paul says God does that through the proclamation of the gospel. Right? The proclamation that by his life, death and resurrection, Jesus is the Christ, right? Jesus is the king in God's kingdom. Uh, in verses 25 and 26, Paul points out that that gospel of Jesus Christ was always present in the Old Testament, in what he refers to as the prophetic writings. Uh, but there, Paul says, uh, it was a mystery that was hidden, uh, which is to say that, that it was really only there in what you might call signposts uh, and shadows. Uh, but now, Paul says, it's been clearly revealed. Right, as the apostles preach through those scriptures and show how all those shadows and signposts have found their fulfillment in Christ, right, in the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. So Paul says that this preaching of the gospel happens by the command of the eternal God. Right, presumably he's got in mind passages like, like Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20, right, the command to, to make disciples of all nations, right? So that, Paul says, all the Gentiles, right, all the nations might come to the obedience that comes from faith. And Paul says, as people from all over the world bow their knee before Christ, God's King, the result will be glory forever to our only wise God. The God who in his abundant wisdom and grace has made a way not only to restore sinners like us to himself and to one another, but to restore his entire world through who? Through Jesus Christ. We would have never dreamed of such this plan. But that's what our only wise God has done. And what does a church full of God's grace look like? It looks like a church full of welcome, warmth, work and watchfulness. That sort of church is all of God's grace. So it's all for God's glory. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this part of your word and indeed for all of the book of Romans. Uh, we thank you that it is full of the good news of your grace to us in our Lord Jesus. Uh, we pray, Father, that our church uh, would be uh, full, indeed overflowing with your grace, uh, full of welcome, warmth, work and watchfulness, uh, that our church might be a great evidence of your grace, all for your great glory. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.